Welcome to the Republican Professor. Today we have again a special guest at Charting Liberty, Mr. Dale Fincher. One and only. Thank you so much, Lucas. It's great to see you. It's great to see you too again. We thought we would talk about what people are talking about with uh, the current president. Um, I think that I've heard a lot of white people call him Joe Biden, but I think it's just kind of, it's like when people say tortilla, mm-hmm. it's actually Ho Biden. A lot, of people Biden. a lot of people don't realize that. So That's right. I wanted That's to be, right. you know, I, I wanted to be very sensitive to other cultures and stuff like that. If we have to list our pronouns, we should list every national language pronunciation of every word before we say them to bring, you know, true equality. Yeah. And I can say that because I'm a black lesbian who who looks (laughs) like this. And there are not very many people that fit that description. So uh, that's a true, that's a minority of minorities. My hat's off to you for finding that. Yeah. And I've been especially uh, traumatized as a result of it. And that's where I get so much power of my power, my internet, my inner strength, which I use to um, silence other people that that are different than me in the name of uh, inclusion. Yes. So you've uh, gone from being an Avenger to being a Revenger. My last, our last guest was uh, Carol Felsenthal. She was awesome. Uh, She was talking about Phyllis Schlafly. And I had such a great time with her. Um, One of the things that surprised me about the episode was she was on. I mean, I did not know she was going to do this, but I did. In fact, I did not even know she was a biographer of Bill Clinton when I had her on. So she had access to Bill Clinton and stuff. And and her first words out of her mouth was he's total jerk. And and I was like, oh. I didn't want to chase that down too much because I don't want to be, you know, too seedy or too, you know, I was trying to, you know, have an elevated discussion about, you know, Phyllis Schlafly, who was the worst hated, the most hated, I should say, uh, woman in America, probably from in the 70s and 80s. Uh, yeah. And by most hated woman in America, I mean, by all the, the cool kids on the block, the regular people loved her and yeah. that's why she was so famous was because her group was like 10 times the size of now the organization national organization of women and people hated her for it you know yeah um i was watching this talk she gave at the cleveland club in 1982 it's on youtube and it was i i was just amazed at her and and she, the mm-hmm. comments she got, I thought that she had a bunch of supporters in the room. She got critical comment after critical comment in the Q&A and every single one, she had the perfect response that just neutralized all the acid. And it's like, but they kept, it was like a bunch of like terminators that just kept coming and then she just neutralized them and neutral. And it's like, don't you see a pattern here? There was just a lot of hate and... I know that politics brings out the worst in people. And I, and I think Joe Biden is a particularly evil, e- easy topic, but Carol went there. She, and by the way, this woman, th- this late, this biographer of Phyllis Schlafly, she uh, totally on, you know, 
she just offered her thoughts about Joe Biden. And this is a woman, when I asked her, do, do you have any Republicans in your social circle? She says, no, without hesitating, she said, none, zero. I said, have you ever had any Republicans in your social circle? Again, none, zero. She works in journalism, Chicago Magazine. I asked her, why is it so monolithically Democrat? You know, she had an interesting answer for that. But she, she without being prompted, began criticizing Democrats. I mean, she, she like Joe Biden, she says he's gone. He's mentally gone. He's got dementia. We don't yeah. know who's running the country. And she yeah. was really concerned about that. And she, and, and she came on the Republican professor to, to talk about that. <laughs> and uh, I was, I was amazed. And uh, I guess when you speak at your mind like that, as a Democrat, you don't get calls back. She was talking about there's people that aren't talking to her because they're upset at her. But, oh, I um, believe it. Yeah, I believe it. but anyway, so she she got me thinking about I, I don't say anything about Joe um, Ho Biden, um, but he, he clearly is in cognitive decline and they're so what do you think about that? That he's in cognitive decline? Well, yeah, yeah. I think that sometimes it's hard to criticize him because he's such an easy target. I mean, it's like, try a little, you know, make this hard. I want, I want, I want to criticize people for things that nobody else can see. You'd be like, if you notice this, this swindler here, even though he has a great smile, but with Joe, it's obvious that he's got a It's not just cognitive decline. I mean, he's has an obvious corrupt history that everybody, you know, in Washington is just trying to, how do we cover up the man behind the curtain as much as possible? I mean, he, he, this is the guy that, you know, put together the crime bill to incarcerate so many people. And then you see the exact same people are saying he's amazing. He's, he's not a racist, but he has a long history of that kind of attitude and approach. But regardless, I'm like, I just look at Joe and I am asking who's running the country. Yeah. But the other interesting side of it, which is a whole other topic, is we know who's been running the country, and it's the same people who've been running the country for a long time. You know, it, the idea of a deep state is not like a conspiracy theory or some sort of something out of the matrix. It's like it's the bureaucracy that is Northern Virginia who are holding on to their pensions and their job security and underperform, underperforming just enough to justify more taxes to make their departments better and at the same time shoring up all the politicians that are the wild cards that come in every two years and say how do we capture these people so they minimize the damage of what we've created both here and abroad so the country is being run and the fact that you can have somebody like joe biden in the white house and nothing changes <laughs> i mean there is a level of chaos yes but overarchingly, it seems like very little actually changes. Somebody else is pulling the levers. And I'm like, well, that's fascinating. That just reveals a bigger problem that, that we have, that those we elect do not represent us, and the country's not going the direction of a true democracy. Yeah. Hmm. I see a lot of comments about people in cognitive decline i've seen comments from um people who don't want to admit they're republicans but are republicans uh criticizing mitch mcconnell for example 
Diane Feinstein. Yep. Those are the three examples I hear all the time. Joe, Diane, and Mitch. Yeah. And I I voted for Diane Feinstein last time because there was only two Democrats on the thing and I had to pick one and I picked her (laughs) because she was less crazy than the other guy. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, so which which is, by the way, every every time I heard, how can you support Trump? I, I, I just thought, well, first of all, I'm not supporting him. Yeah. You know, he never asked me for any money. I'm not supporting him. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that I voted for him does not mean I support him. It means that I was picking the one that I thought of the options was the, the best one. And, uh, you know, that's 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 what you got to do. But there are a lot of deep kind of issues here that if uh, we had like a whole class period and a bunch of students, you and me could have fun with that. Like, what is the meaning of democracy and what is the meaning of representation and why do we even have right. elections? And what's the whole point of this whole thing? Yeah. And, you know, um, on the bureaucracy thing, I will say that I am against uh, age limits for for elections because the i think the voters should be in charge of who goes into office i think and i think that's what distinguishes the elected officials from the bureaucracy the bureaucracy nobody has a choice about who those people are right i mean mm-hmm. as far as the voters go i mean the people in power that's right should have more of a choice i think i think that there should be it should be easier to fire those people yeah um but you know and we could this would be where we talk about for maybe an hour about civil service reform and why we have the reforms that we have and why we have the protections and the tenure and all that stuff and there's a reason for all that stuff and there, you know th- there's an argument to be made for that right but there's also an argument to be made for the president being in charge of the executive branch, not the other way around. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And, yeah. So, and I, and I well, think I, there's a, there's a, there, I think there's an argument to be made for old people running the country because um, old people have the most experience, mm-hmm. you know, and if there is a threat that Northern, Northern Virginia bureaucrats are very powerful who is best to counter them except for people that have been there for a long time. I mean, mm-hmm. think about the average Congress person. They get there and they don't even know where the bathrooms are. You know, I mean, you, your first day in Congress, what are you going to do? You know, I mean, you don't even know how big this thing is. You don't have time. You got two, two years. So the next election, and that's not, two years until you run again you have like 10 days and still you ha- until you have to start running again if you want to get <laughs> elected right. you know so what are you going to do i mean these people have been there for decades and they know where they know where the, the water fountain is and you know they know a lot more than that they know more than you do so what are you going to do i mean you know it's a it's a real question i ask my students you know what do, i don't know what you think about it well uh- Real quickly on that, and then I want to talk about the age limit thing. I think that's an important topic for today. What I say about the other question about, you know, you have to, you know, as soon as you get there, you got to start running again, is that we've 
we've created too many responsibilities for the job positions themselves. I think that's a that's part of it. I mean, imagine being a president and in Lincoln's day, when people who visited the White House literally made an appointment to sit down with the president, the scope of his responsibilities was nothing compared to what it would be now. And if you keep layering on responsibility after responsibility, bureaucracies galore all around you. I mean, we're going to have to make an age limit and bring it all the way down to like 25 because the only people in graduate school can stay up that late or only people of young children have the ability to operate on four hours of sleep every day. <laughs> but, you know, how much are we going to layer on the responsibilities? That's why, of course, I'm a huge advocate of decentralization, that if we're going to have a federal government, that thing needs to be as small and as minuscule as possible so that the American people can pay attention to what's going on in their state and their county and in their own town and in their own neighborhood and in their own family. So that's a huge thing. But as for as for the age limits, I think it's always good to consider what are the arguments for the age limits? What's the chatter? Because there's this huge, this existential frustration among so many that these people in Washington are old and they're like short circuiting in front of microphones. I mean, Feinstein has power of attorney apparently on her personal level, but when the vote comes up in the Senate, she's told by her assistant that she needs to vote aye or vote no because she can't follow the, the discussion. And you're like, yeah, that's very, very frustrating. So I understand why people say we need to get these old people out. They're just not functioning the way we, they, they need to. And uh, I think the major problem with that is not an approach from age. And I think the age thing is it would be a problem. It should be an approach from ability or merit. You know, we talk about being a meritocracy in general. People you, be good at something and we want people in charge who are the best at it. If I, have a, if I have a brain surgeon, I don't just want to say, I'll take a brain surgeon as long as they're a minority. I want to say, I want to take a brain, brain surgeon that's really good at this. That would be my question. And so when it comes to even who we elect, I want to put on the ballot the people that in my town, in my county, in my state, we have determined best represents us. And as soon as you add age into it, you've created this arbitrary thing. It's like, well, we need to make the age at 80. I'm like, why 80? We're not 81. Why not? My grandfather, when he died at 85, was cognizant and was a world traveler. He was about to get on a plane to the Middle East to put in a bid to build a giant runway in Israel. And that's where he was headed. But the day before he was supposed to leave, he went in for a general heart scan. And we think the doctor messed up something, but he had a major heart attack on the table and he was dead the next morning. So it's one of those, you know, it's a tragic little story, but he was an extremely capable person. It had nothing to do with his age. His mind was sharp. His body was, was, was mobile. So that's the kind of person, if they're capable, I want to represent me because they have the wisdom, the knowledge, the relationships, and the other things that you mentioned to go along with it. And I, I had this discussion on social media recently where somebody says we need to tap out, you know, people when they get older. Not only does it sound terribly bigoted and ageist, but as soon as you say, that guy's 80, he's not fit to be senator. It's like you just insulted all the 80-year-olds in the entire country and calling them all unfit to be able to, to operate a leaderly kind of life. But the, uh, the other part of it is um, I would rather take a 90-year-old Ron Paul, I'd rather him represent me than to have a million AOCs representing me. 
Because when you just look at age alone, you're like, that doesn't tell you anything about who is best fit for the particular office and what we're up to. Yeah. Well, not only are you offending the 80-year-olds, but you're, you should be offending everybody who voted for them. Yeah, that's right. That, and that's kind of the point of elections is that the voters yeah. decide that. So if Kentucky, that'd be a good question. Like, does Kentucky want to say, we don't want Mitch, we need a backup? Do they have an ability to do something like that when they see that they're, I mean, the president has a 25th Amendment, but what do senators have? What do the voters have as a recourse besides just simply saying, let's start making age limits? Well, I mean, this gets to a foundational issue with the this discipline is the the philosophical issues are always the foundational issues, you know. And the question is, like, for a lot of Republicans, they like term limits. Yeah, they love term limits. Yep. Well, that's a deep suspicion of elections. That's sure. that's, that's what that is. That's right. And you have, you have people complaining about the age stuff. That's also a deep suspicion about elections. We would call that uh, anti-democratic, right? Well, I don't know what you call it, but um, it seems like I'm, I'm not sure how you're proud of America if you have that deep of a suspicion of aid of of elections i'm not sure what you're celebrating in on the fourth of july yeah. I, I just don't know what you're talking you like the way the flag looks i i don't know you know you like <laughs> making things explode because you can't run a country just constantly blowing things up that's that's not how you run yeah. a country yeah. and and the 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 uh the newly independent colonists had to figure that out very quickly and they didn't figure it out very quickly well relatively they did in terms of world history they were the fastest people that ever figured it out because nobody had figured it out before that but they had to really quickly figure out how they're going to change this thing and then they came up with the constitution thank god i think that was a not a stroke of genius i think it was god's hand on america um and the fact that most students don't seem to get that is um, indicate something very sick about how we're raising our kids um, K through 12 and all the rest TikTok, whatever, whatever's going on. But I, I just feel like, uh, you know, we're, we don't have the attention span. I mean, I do, and I know you do, but a lot of people don't have the attention span to talk about what to think about process, what the point of elections is and, and yeah. what, uh, what representation means. And I think a lot of the uh, stuff you see, you know, in the popular culture or social media or whatever, regular media on the college campuses is a, is a deep and profound confusion about what representation means. Yeah. And, um, that, and that, that part of the term limit thing, along with age limits, is another one of those frustrations that people have because yeah. they look at it from that practical perspective of the incumbent automatically has a war chest. Mm -hmm. of money and we have learned statistically yeah. that 90% of incumbents win it's really hard to unseat somebody and again you would think that the it's an insult to the voter to say you guys get to choose but you're not good at it so we're going to do two term limits but on the other hand the voter is like 
there's too, there are too many people who are not thoughtful about the election. And they'll just look at that stupid glossy flyer that comes in the mail that calls your opponent the devil. And they'll run off to the polling booth and vote for the incumbent. And uh, because they had all the money and they had all the marketing. And that's, um, I feel like that's a, it's a real damning indictment on even the land of the free and the fireworks and the flag that we are so easily duped into simply falling for the scam come September through November every other year. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, the, the marketing doesn't really work as well as you, you think though. I mean, that that's an interesting thing about the marketing is you can send that stuff to everybody and a lot of people doesn't has no impact on it at all. Uh, I know that you're just wasting money. It does impact some people, but it works, which is why they throw their money at it. I mean, they right, wouldn't throw their money at it if they didn't see results. I wouldn't think. Sure, but it's the way they receive results that's interesting. Um, so, for example, if I if I'm you know a Republican, I'm just saying hypothetically, and yeah. uh, I, I come up with a marketing campaign against somebody, and I I send a bunch of mailers to a bunch of Democrats. It, it's probably not going to do anything. That's why people want to know where the money is because they want to, they, they have a hard time interpreting images and stuff. That, so they, they want the shorthand, they want the requirements. You have to put where the funding is, you know, and then that's right. their way of understanding. Oh, okay. It's one of those. It's, right. it's one of those it's bad pictures. It's one of those bad pictures. It's not one of our bad pictures. Yes. And so that's the level of, of critical thinking. I've, I've been trying to undo that on the college campuses for 20 years. I mean, I was teaching logic and critical thinking. I was trying to get kids to have the skills <laughs> to interpret for themselves any bad picture they get, you know, what, who, yeah. no matter who funded it, who cares who funded it? What, what do yeah. you care about who funded it? If you can't interpret it for what it is, I mean, you know, now with AI, I mean, dude, we haven't seen anything yet. I mean, you can fudge the who funded it line on there. Who's going to chase that down? You're going to sue the yeah. person that mailed that to you because they put it funded by the Democratic Party or something. I mean, well, I there's so many it. packs out there that you could just make up a new pack every I, other day. You every single pack has has a version of the same name. Yeah, you know, that's right. Like, uh, you can't even keep there's it's hilarious at this point, you know, like. You know, it's a, it, the pro-constitution or... pack, you know, <laughs> that's right. it's always freedom and pro freedom. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's why we, we had this discussion when I was talking about we're coming up with how to, what to call our, the podcast here. And, and there was a voice in the room that said, we should call it the American professor and the American, this and that and I, great idea. But I, I, I pointed out, I was like, but, but Democrats are Americans too. <laughs> um, unfortunately. Uh, we have to deal with these guys, uh, you know, and we, and calling them not American, I don't think is the best way to do it. You know, and yeah, I, I just, I just voted for being honest. It's yeah. the Republican. I, and so if I was running it, I would just say Republican and because I'm not trying to manipulate anybody. I don't, I don't care about manipulation. I, I just want to cut through the BS. Yeah. And there's so much manipulation that it actually backfires. I think after a while. Hey, this I is an interesting it, thing from American. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Well, I was going to say uh, along those same lines, sometimes when you 
reveal who you are, it automatically disconnects somebody else you're trying to get to know. Like if telling people right up front, I'm a Christian and I want to talk to you could actually shut down a lot of conversations that I could otherwise have, but that becomes a barrier. And sometimes the word Republican or even the word Democrat is a major barrier for some reason, some people to say, oh, I don't even want to get to know you because it's obvious you are all the bad words I've been trained to call you and think about you, you know. Sure. I mean, I think a lot of this is is just a, a lack of comfort with the obvious. And, you know, if I like if I I've never gone up to someone in the in the the locker room at 24 Hour Fitness and said, hey, I'm a man. I would like to talk to you <laughs> in the men's rest. And, you know, yeah, now we yeah. have an issue even with that term, yeah, even yeah. with that term. You know, so, but, you know, hey, I'm a human being. I'd like to talk to you. Now, that's the next one. You're, you're like, you know, I knew you weren't a robot. Right. But then there's a whole other set of people who are like, they fill up their entire bio and social media with all of these words and identity markers and labels. Like, this is who I am. I am half the words I don't even understand. But it's like, okay, that's how you wanted me to approach you as a man of many confusing titles. Anyway, you were saying. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that the thing from American history that is very instructive on the suspicion of elections, which goes pretty deep, I think, and and yeah. also the suspicion of political parties, which I think is so weird. Yeah. On one level, I think it's weird. I, I mean, I get it, uh, but it's also a little weird, and I want to you know just briefly comment on it. But... That's a whole other topic, too. Parties. We could do a pro. Sure. Versus con on parties. Well, yeah, I mean, I I just think they're inevitable, and I I my it's for me. I just want to be honest about it and not manipulative, which I yes. think is progress. Yes, but but I want to go back to the. I, I'm not sure if I, we talked about that before, but <clears throat> we had the the amendment limiting the number of times a president could be elected. Right after, after, right, after FDR. Right after, right after FDR. And. It's very sobering look at the American people, the character of the American people, the partisanship of the American people. If you look at that time period, look at the results that FDR got in terms of the, the election results, look at the Congress, how it was, and look at the presidency. He blew away his opponents, and it is not an overstatement to say that i think the the democrats at one point during the 40-year reign they had of the house of representatives had a 150 seat margin over the republicans so so this is our history this yeah. is the history by the way that's during segregation by the way that's during yeah. segregation that's right which you know a lot of people tend to forget that's right but the republicans were almost entirely responsible for winning the civil war almost entirely i think actually they were entirely responsible for the first civil rights act in american history yeah. which no one ever calls the civil rights movement except for me but i i think the reason it's not called the civil rights movement is because there's such a deep hatred of republicans in american history that there's a almost like a demonic spirit that mm. that cannot um, admit 
that's the civil rights movement because Republicans were in charge and you can't deny it. You can't yeah, deny it. Yeah. That's why no one says it, says that's what it is. I, and that's my experience, right. explanation. I'm a Christian. I believe in the demonic realm. And that's my best explanation for why so many places are under such dark oppression for decades and decades like North Korea, for example. And I'm not saying I know the solution to it exactly, but I'm just trying to explain why the way that that's the way it is. But look at what happened to the Democrats. Um, Mm -hmm. FDR is enjoying this incredible, like historic four wins and then dies in office and then Truman gets elected or I'm sorry, Truman, (laughs) Truman uh, inherits the throne as it were. And basically right after that, you have a constitutional amendment uh, proposed to limit elections to two terms. And if you know anything about, and I know you do, but you know, for everybody else listening, it is a very difficult to get a constitutional amendment passed. You need a super, super majority, not just a super majority, which is two thirds. You need a super, super, which is three fourths of the states. And that means that there were people that voted Democrat. They voted for FDR. They voted for him to have a fourth term. These people put him in office the third and fourth time. And those same people were admitting they made a mistake. Yeah, now, that, fascinating. That is, a, that is amazing to me. And, is and it, has, has anybody written on this observation of like what was the climate of well, the voters maybe. themselves if it's like it? I've read so many things, uh, you know, through the course of the 20 years, I've read so many things. I, I can't remember what I'm piecing together and what's my unique, you know, as I'm seems to me that oh, whenever, sure. I'm re- whenever I'm reading, it's like, I have like a lot of thoughts of my own. And yeah, you know, I know, yeah. if I don't write them down, then I, I forget which ones are mine and which ones well, are somebody else's. I only like what, 25 years earlier, two thirds of this country banned alcohol. So we know that right. they do goofy things. Uh huh. That's a great example too. Um, <laughs> of all things to rally around. This is the, this is the one that gets my students is, when I ask them, uh, how did women get the right to vote? And they go, women fought for it. They, they, they. <laughs> and I, I said, oh, that's very interesting. That's the story. Uh-huh. Okay. So in other words, women didn't have the right to vote. And then all of a sudden they did. And uh, women get all the credit for that. Mm-hmm. That's a very interesting theory. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's like saying... You know, blacks got the right to vote and uh, they they didn't have the right to vote. Then they did. And blacks get all the credit for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're missing something. Seems like you you yeah. left out a huge chunk, of, uh, namely yeah. the people that could vote that you just right. said. That's right. You just said that the people that only the people could vote are white. Only the people that could vote were man. And then the, the people that are the beneficiaries, they're the ones that are get yeah. all the credit. Well, anyway. Fine, whatever. Uh, seems to me that we have this this uh, it's a it's a human nature problem. And I'm a Christian, and I believe that there is such a thing as sin, and we have a fallen human nature. We also are created in the image of God, so there's two things there. We're inc- we're inherently valuable and dignified, 
and we bear God's image. And we also have um, these uh, incredible, horrible tendencies. But broken. Um, yeah. So that's how I see American politics. And it's an interesting lens to look at it. I think it makes sense of a lot of stuff that you see. Yeah. You know, from the way we talk about elections and representation and the way that people change their minds. I mean, even the issue of constitutional amendment is fascinating because it requires such a, a, a strength of support, you know, that you wonder if there's that much support for that, why would you ever need a constitutional amendment? Yeah. I mean, if there's that much agreement, if there's yeah. two, if there's three fourths of the States that are saying definitely this is the right way. Well, then why wouldn't you just be able to rely on that for elections going forward? Why, why would you need to put it in writing yeah. in, the, in the Constitution? We, you, there's obviously a fear of future generations not getting it, Yeah, which, in, it, which implies an, an indictment on your ability to inculcate your values in the next yeah, generation. Right. It also implies a deep suspicion of human nature that even if you do your best, you will probably fail. Yeah. And and like I was just like talking about uh, Carol with Carol Felsenthal about Phil Schlafly. She was a huge opponent of the uh, Equal Rights Amendment and it failed. That was the last major amendment and it failed. And it was about equality of the sexes in the Constitution. And it was very it was only like one sentence long. It's like, you know, the the sexes will be treated exactly equally in every way. No exceptions. And so the question was, well, how do you, how do you make sense? And if you go back into what Phyllis Schlafly was saying, like in that 1982 talk that she gave at the Cleveland club, which is on YouTube under Cleveland club, look it up. Um, she said that that would make a genderless society. Sure. So she assumed that uh, that sex and gender were the same thing. That's what she, she you know, was just taken. By the way, no one, no one disagreed with her about that. Yeah. That, that it was the same thing back then. And and she said that would imply that the, the definition of marriage would be obliterated because you'd say gender was irrelevant to marriage. And no one disagreed with that. The reason that she won was because of her point about the military. And basically you had to admit that, you know, there was a feminist movement that wanted more women in the military and in combat and, and to erase the distinctions. But at the same time, you have to make all these exceptions for women. Like, for example, how many push-ups they can do, how many pull-ups they can do, do they have time off after they give birth, all sorts of things like that. And if, ironically, an equal rights amendment would actually only benefit men because if a woman has a right to only do 12 push-ups and get promoted, well, then you just said that a man has that same exact right instead of doing 40 push-ups. And all that would do is lower standards across the military and basically push women out because there's only so many places for advancement. Yeah. And all you're doing is lowering the standards to what a woman can do. Until the draft comes along and then the women come yeah, in. They, yeah, exactly. And then they go to the front line and die. Well, that that it took people the, the the equal rights amendment almost passed phyllis schlafly and carol felsenthal she was there she 
1981, she wrote this book and she, she knew Phyllis. Um, and she's not as, she was not sympathetic. I mean, she was totally on the other side of this whole thing. And, and she, she says Phyllis Schlafly stopped it in its tracks. It was like at almost 35 States. It needed 38. Phyllis was the one that came in. As soon as it came on her radar, she stopped it. Wow. Almost single-handedly. That's how. And what a disaster. What a disaster that would have been. Shining in law, something philosophically false. It's like saying you can only go to work standing on your head. So everybody go to work standing on your head. And if you don't, it's illegal. I'm sorry you can't work. I mean, it's it's so ludicrous. But we're also talking about a time in which postmodernism was rising. Marxist postmodernism rising through the ranks so much. Those philosophical distinctions don't even exist and certainly haven't been taught. So you sit down and just have a fundamental view of what does it mean to be human? Those, those aren't there. So the general public is like, they're what educated on human, yeah. No, Nobody, nobody, knows. they're just like, let's just write this cute little law. This is what we mean. And what do you mean? Well, you know, in, in general, it's like, but the law is specific, but it's so painful because that those kinds of laws are all over the place in this country. Yeah. It drives me nuts. That's why I like focusing on the gun control debate because it's such it's a, so I obvious. Think it, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was your whole thing with the voice of the second yeah. that you had for a long time. So. Yeah. But this is, that's a great story. That's fantastic. And people don't realize who should get the credit from keeping, yeah. you know, keeping this tornado of chaos out of our. Ironically, bedrock. it was a woman that that that's the most ironic thing about the whole story is yeah. it was a woman that defeated the Equal Rights Amendment and she was hated for it. Yeah. She, and, and for sexist reasons, by the way, she yeah, called sure. every name in the book. Yeah. She always responded so gracefully. This this. I'm sorry, I keep talking about the last episode, but I, I'm still like in a gl- afterglow from that because, yeah, yeah. because um, th- she was incredible. I mean, I you can't imagine this woman. She was real. She worked her way through college, working at night, mm-hmm. firing machine guns and blowing stuff up for the for the military. Because all the men were at war in World War II. It was women that were doing those night jobs. She would work from midnight to 8 a.m., go to class at 9 a.m. That's how she paid for her undergrad. And so when she when she was asked, uh, this is Phyllis Schlafly, when she was asked, shouldn't she be thanking the feminist movement? She said, I was putting myself through college in the 40s before the feminist movement. There was even such a thing. And no, so I don't owe them a thing. I did it myself. Thank you. Yeah. And she was yeah. firing like 8,000 rounds a night. Shut testing yeah. wow. machine guns. She wow. was putting like the, the rounds in like the oven and seeing how hot it yeah. could get before they exploded. And she was doing stuff like that. And, yeah. and if you look at her, she's this dainty woman that sits up straight, doesn't t- touch the back of her chair, you know, like probably wears a doily at church, you know, over her head. Yeah. And, and she's, you know, and, paints her fingernails and stuff like that and she had six kids she she's insane i mean she went to law school in her 50s because she was sick of people criticizing her for not being a lawyer and talking about the equal equal rights amendment so she's like okay i'll just go to law school she goes to law school 
she she writes this book called Choice Not an Echo in 1964 while she's pregnant and she's stumping for Goldwater. She writes this book without a publisher, self-publishes it. It sells multiple millions of copies in months with no publisher. In the 60s, in the 60s that's nearly impossible. <laughs> and she's pregnant. And you know, pregnant. It's, it's like, I can't. I feel so bad about my, like, I don't do anything, you know, like, I feel like, I'm, you know, You're, we're, we're not built for that kind of life. That is, a, that is a phenomenal bundle of energy and ambition that it's amazing oh, to marvel. This lady, she did a great job. Talk, I mean, she, when you learn, learn that she's Democrat with no Demo, or no yeah. Republican friends, the care she put into talking about this woman's life, it was yeah. the highest level professionalism I think I've ever seen in a book. Wow. wow. Because you could tell that they didn't agree necessarily about things. And, and Carol said in an interview, she said, I, you know, I don't, I don't agree with anything, you know, but she did such an un, a wonderful job of empathizing and, and pointing out the sexism against Phyllis Lafley. And she was willing to undergo all sorts of, of uh, criticism from Democrats for writing the book. Yeah. I mean, it just, that's what stays. Wonder what, about did you ask her what fueled her passion to write a, this book? If it's not something that kind of was a, it was her first book. And so she had, it was a convenient, it was kind of a convenience thing in a way, because she said, uh, I gave her a bunch of compliments and she would always say, ah, oh, beginner's luck, you know, something, but you know, she's, you could tell she's a little bit uncomfortable get, getting compliments. I don't know if that's her Jewish heritage or whatever, but, um, she said that uh, she had written this piece critical of of her Phyllis Schlafly, in in the I think it was Chicago Magazine. It was a book review, and it was really critical. She said very critical. It was on that basis of that that she got the contract for the book. Well, then she reached out to try to get access to the materials she would need to, to do a proper biography. And Schlafly, when she found, I think that she had been married in the time and changed her last name. So it wasn't immediately obvious. It was the same person that wrote this bad review. But when she pointed out that she's the one that wrote that, I guess Schlafly was, uh, gave her the cold shoulder and was pretty, you know, was upset. Um, but, but the way she tells it is that that didn't last long. Schlafly eventually just invited her to her home said, here's my scrapbooks, any, you know, open book, whatever you need, um, you know, and, and showed almost like a motherly concern for her wow. and um, gave her advice about breastfeeding, you know, stuff like, you know, organic food before there was such a thing. And, and, you know, just kind of doted over a little bit. Um, you know, wow. Wow. And it made an impression on the writer. That is remarkable. And she did really, really, really good job. She said of all the subjects she covered, and she's covered Obama's uh, chiefs of staff. She's covered, you know, like Rahm Emanuel. She's she's covered um, Clinton. One of Biden's, I think she's covering him. Biden's chief of staff, Clinton, uh, Catherine Graham, the, the woman that ran the Washington Post. She she wrote a biography of her. She said that Catherine uh, Graham wanted her thrown in jail. <laughs> wanted the wow. book pulled from all the libraries and and uh, 
and she said of all the subjects she had, Phyllis was the one that treated her the the best. And treated the very her, first. Treated her right. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm part of me wants to go. Hey, you know, pay attention to those details. You know. Yeah. But, yeah. But what am I going to do? I don't want to be. You know, I don't want to well, make it look like I'm giving a mailer for the Republican Party. <laughs> but anyway. And, then, and things that transcend the Republican Party. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Like, like. Like standing what? on the, the permanent things. What it means to be alive. What it means to be in yeah. God's earth. What is, it, what is the point yeah. of the whole thing? It's so That's easy to get caught up in constitutions and parties and politics and green energy but if you don't have that starting place of what is this for mm. then everything else is a wrong turn yeah and i think that when somebody is treated with the kind of kindness you're sharing if that doesn't make you pause and say what kind of worldview what kind of soul work has this person done that causes them to live a life that is so free and open and loving. You know, if we can't ask that question of what is going on behind it, we're missing the whole point of the encounter. So that's lovely. It's a shining light. My, you know, my mom used to say before she died, she used to say, you know, we're more like lighthouses than ship captains when we're trying to help other people. He says, the job of the lighthouse is standing there on the shore where the rocks are. Yeah. And it's shining out saying, the safe harbor is there. Don't come over here. The safe harbor is there. And, uh, but they don't, the lighthouse never jumps into the water, swims out to the boat, and steers somebody's ship for them. And, and my mom used to use that illustration all the time. She goes, I can't steer your ship. You only you can steer your ship. But I will be a lighthouse, and I will say, danger here. Home is there. Find your way. Hmm. And if we're not noticing those lighthouse moments, we might be missing the whole point of everything. That's a, that is a, a lovely story. And it's great to hold on to those people that have come across our path to say lighthouse, lighthouse, lighthouse. What made them into lighthouses? And I want to follow that kind of journey too. Yeah. Well, how do you get into the harbor? What I, I think I'm only missing one thing about that. And it's great what you just shared. Yeah. The, how does the lighthouse show you where the harbor is? Because it seems like it only shows you where not to go, not where to, to go. You know, so, well, the, that's the fascinating thing. You know, Malcolm Mugridge, halfway through his life, he's a journalist. He's running off to India. He's running off to Marxist Russia, thinking that this is where, what life is about. And and then and when you get to his, like, 50s, he says, I, I cannot tell you what life is about, but I can tell you what life is not about. And there's a lot to discovering what life is not about that almost funnels us towards that right conclusion. And for Malcolm Mugridge, of course, you know, he came to faith. He encountered Jesus and Mother Teresa in the 60s, and he eventually made, you know, his own commitment to Jesus. So that is what a, a good lighthouse can do. And, of course, you also have your charts and your maps. And if the lighthouse guy actually has a VHF radio, he could radio over to the ship and say, this is your bearing you need to be on, figure out how to get there. But at the end of the day, you have to sail your own ship. 
And uh, so that nobody can get inside of you and make the decisions for you. We can even try to do it by force. But at the end of the day, you have to make your own choice. And you got to figure out the way through to, to the safe harbor. And we can be thankful there's at least lighthouses out there. Maybe we'll complain there are more of them. But be thankful there's at least some of them. So take what you got and run with it. What would you recommend people start with with Malcolm Muggridge if they were going to just, that's the first time they're hearing the guy. First time, I, I think a really fun Muggridge book that I like is called Jesus Rediscovered. Oh, I've never He wrote it in book. the 60s. He would even say himself that he wasn't a Christian when he wrote it, but it's a collection of his speeches, essays. He was a prolific writer and he's really fun to read. I mean, he strings words and sentences together unlike anybody that I've ever read. And uh, he just got has some fantastic insight, but that would be a good one to start with. But he's got like I don't know fifty books. He's got quite a quite a library. I think that one of the first times I saw you was at Talbot School of Theology in the chapel doing a Malcolm Muggridge. I don't know if yeah. it was in the chapel, but it was. I think it was. I Maybe like it was in the chapel, but it, you were doing some kind of Malcolm Muggridge impression. Yeah. Yeah, I did a whole one-man show on Malcolm Muggridge that, uh, in my 20s. In yep. 2003, I saw it. Yep. Wow. I'm glad that you saw that. That that was a... Uh, I, I love that thing. I love that guy. He's fascinating. He has such a great insight. He understood communism. He understood the problems with it. Uh, he understood America and the problems with it. And he said, we're at the end of Christendom which sounds really depressing, but he says, until we, the corrupt structures can decay, we can't see the bright shining light of who Jesus is because he's hiding, he's being cloaked by all the structures that are in decay, that are using his name in vain and pretending to be the moral and the virtuous voices, but they're just leading us all down the primrose path of destruction, which I think most Americans even feel today. Like we were told to trust the medical community. We can't trust that. We we're told to trust journalists. And it turns out these things are all corrupted from within. We can't trust that. We are told to trust the university, the unity and the diversity, the knowledge bearing centers of our culture. Guess what? We can't trust that. Everything, we can't trust our politicians, our institutions. We're throwing our money at things and we're like, where's our money going? We can't trust it. Eventually those things die under the weight of their own decay. Not because the buildings are falling apart and not because they don't have the money, but they lose their own authority because they've surrendered knowledge and virtue to other places. So Malcolm Muggeridge is like, yeah, fine, let him burn. But there's only still one hope. And he's the one that offers to the spiritually thirsty one drop. Just that one drop is greater than all of the fame and the money and the wealth that could possibly be given by this world. That one drop Jesus offers to the spiritually thirsty, no matter who they are. And that to me is like, yeah, if we take a step back to the first principles and say, if Jesus is the king, if he knows what he's talking about and those who study him come to that conclusion very frequently, then that's what we want to organize our life around. And it's bigger than the Constitution, but it also informs the Constitution. And it's, it's bigger than our politicians, but hopefully can inform our politicians. And that's the pa only pathway to a real life, a good free life. That's the lighthouse that we got to figure out. And what's great about Jesus is he actually says, I will climb upon your ship. And if you let me, I will tutor you on how to be a proper captain 
to know what the map means and to steer yourself home and to lead others along the way. But that's the cool thing about Jesus. He's the only one that can get on the ship with you at the end of the day. If someone is listening to this and intrigued, but it sounds like what they might call Christian or they've heard Christian nationalism. Oh gosh. Is that what you call it? I would not call this Christian nationalism. No. Well, you're saying, you know, like Malcolm Muggeridge is British, right? Yeah. And there's no separation of church and state there. It's a state funded church and That's church right. of England has gone astray, but yeah. it's still funded by the state. And, and, you know, the king is a, supposedly the head of the that, church. That's probably as scary why. As that is. That's probably why Muggeridge became a Catholic rather than an Anglican. Okay. Well, <laughs> you have the issue though of of it's really the same. It's really almost the same doctrine though. And oh, it is. They're from the, they're from the same source. The Trinity. One, one is a state, the Vatican, and that sure. state has representation all over the world. It's called you know the Catholic Parish. But um, the Anglicans are, you know, under the king themselves yeah. in England, and that's sort of breakaway. But this is a totally different topic. We should cover Yeah, this that's what time. I was about to say is I know that I just uh, – but do you have a <laughs> – do you have anything to say that would be quick about that? So you've already said it's not Christian nationalism, but we're talking about constitutions and we're talking about Jesus is a high, higher than that. But if that's yeah. what's supposed to be our lighthouse, then yeah. isn't it Christian no, because you can have that and be an anarchist. Because ultimately, when it says Jesus is the king, you have to let him be the king of what he claims to be king of. And what he's king of is he's king of Israel. That's what his whole title is about. That's what's written on the cross itself above his head. King of the Jews. He will sit on David's throne. He's the rightful heir to the throne of David. So when you look at Jesus as being the king in that way, he is the king of Israel. And even in the scripture itself, you see how the new Jerusalem and the old Jerusalem meet together. Heaven comes down to earth where Jesus will eventually reign. That's what, you know, is, is said by, you know, John when he writes the book of Revelation. But that's very different from saying Christians need to set up a state according to the dictates of Jerusalem halfway around the world. Because that is a Jewish story that we are invited into. But even in that story, the nations are coming from all around the world to worship and pay homage to the king of the Jews. And that's like the last chapters of the whole Bible. So if all these nations make Jesus their king in that sense, then you have Christian nationalism in every single nation. It doesn't seem like that's what the Bible is talking about at all. You still have your own governance in all sorts of places. It doesn't say what kind of governance you need to have. You could have simply family governance and tribal governance, whatever it may be. But you could still have Jesus be the king because the kingdom of God is here. I have my loyalty to him, but I can orchestrate the people around me around the virtues that he promotes so that they can come to him and come to understand them of their own will. The problem of Christian nationalism is that it wants to bypass people's wills and force them to follow and worship after this God whom they may not yet be convinced in their own mind, heart and soul. That's the damning part. And why, to me, classical liberalism is such a brilliant move by our founders in this nation because it allows the freedom of conscience that you are so free to be as wrong as possible. As long as you're not hurting other people, there should be no consequence for it, at least on the judicial level. 
But when it comes to bringing some sort of Christian nationalism in, it creates its own evils that come with it in which you're bypassing people and maybe even enslaving people in the name of this God. And then we're back to a, a big corrupt Christendom all over again. That's just a synopsis. Sure. There's a lot of nuance there. That was lovely. And I, the saddest thing I think of, it was like when you're talking about Jesus being King of the Jews and stuff is that most of my students wouldn't know the difference between that and, and Nazism. Yeah. They, they, there are so many people that would say that sounds like Nazi. Yeah, like, I know you're missing kind of something are... basic, pretty basic. I think about, you know, what Hitler <laughs> thought as far as the king of the Jews. <laughs> yeah. I think he was pretty skeptical about the Ten Commandments, like especially the one do not murder and do not yeah, steal. Yeah, a little bit. Know? Yeah. You know, but that's it was written in Hebrew. You know, what do I know? But anyway. <laughs> I know. Awesome, man. It's always great talking to you. Yeah, you too. Everybody, this is Voice of the... Oh, my gosh. This is at Charting Liberty, Dale Fincher. Thanks. Thanks for coming here, Dale. Thanks, Lucas. Always great to be with you.